So as we jump into the Gospel of John, what I, we're going to, I want to pray real quick, and then we're just going to jump in and get to work and all that God has for us. So Jesus, we invite you now to just come speak to us, uh, your word. God, open our hearts as we just pause, we reflect upon who you are, upon your character, upon your nature, and upon who we are and what we need. So God, we bring all of that to you this morning, knowing that you love us, knowing that you care for us, knowing that you are for us. And so we ask you, Father, right now, would you just speak to us uh, all that you have in store? So we come with ears ready to hear and uh, lives that just want to apply and live forth all that you are calling us to. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we've been going through this little series uh, in the book of John, and one of the things that we looked at over the past several weeks is what's commonly known as the prologue, which is like the basic introduction of the larger story of the Gospel of John, which is basically a, a biography about the life of Jesus written by one of Jesus' closest friends, a guy by the name of John the Beloved. That being said, John kind of sets up in the prologue a series of like uh, wit- witnesses that he's going to eventually call upon. And John's pretty clear about his agenda in writing this entire book. You know, when people write something, there's usually uh, an attention behind that, whether it's like an opinion piece in the New York Times or, you know, a book that's just written by whoever. Uh, there's always an, an intention behind that. And it's usually either just to, to depart information to you or to motivate you or to uh, move you to some particular action or activity. John's the same way. John has a very clear agenda. He tells you this in the very last few verses of the entire book, like chapter 21, something like that. He tells you that I write all these things to you so that you would believe. Like John wants your attention and my attention to be focused and shaped by the story that he's about to tell us about Jesus. Now, for some of us, that's, that's a little tough. Because for, I would probably even venture to say, for most of us here, most of us in this room know something about Jesus. Maybe some of us, if not most of us, many of us at least, uh, have been brought up in a Christian home or know something about the Christian story. Um, some of us don't. Some of us are kind of in this journey of discovering and figuring it out, trying to make sense of who Jesus is. Uh, we're glad, wherever you're at on this journey or this adventure, super stoked that you're here. My hope would be that wherever you're at kind of on that spectrum, that you would just listen to the story and really try, maybe even for the very first time, to listen with fresh ears, to see with new eyes what God wants to say to you here this morning. Now, again, the challenge especially is poised for those who know the story. Uh, It's very possible for us to become overly familiar with Jesus, that when we listen to the story that John's telling us, it doesn't hit us the way that it might have hit us the first time we heard it. And that can be problematic because really, again, John's aim is so that as we read the story, as we learn it, that we with fresh faith would come to cling our lives to Jesus, to love him with a whole new heart of love towards him, to see the love of God that's been shown towards us so that we at the end of this day would basically follow Jesus with all of our heart. The language that John's going to say is believe. Now again, we've talked about this on other occasions, but when John invites us to believe, he's not simply saying, I want you to shift whatever thoughts that you had about Jesus to take these new thoughts. Thoughts are a part of it, but really the big idea is John's whole aim is I want you to become a disciple. I want you to be an apprentice of this one Jesus. Um, the idea of a disciple is synonymous with the modern term that we would think of in terms of an apprentice. Now, if you were an apprentice, you were basically giving yourself entirely over to uh, your mentor, and you're going to learn to do whatever it is that your mentor tells you to do. 
in every level, in every angle. Maybe at some point you might learn to innovate how your mentor did something, but there's going to be a season where the sum total of your life is devoted to learning everything that can be learned from your mentor and let that shape you. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to, or that's what John is inviting us to do with regard to Jesus, that we would become completely devoted followers or apprentices or mentors, or I should say uh, disciples of Jesus as our mentor. So with that being said, uh, what John's going to do now is going to basically draw upon the testimony of a guy by the name of John the Baptizer. Most of us probably are probably familiar with this guy. If you're not familiar with him, he's a super interesting character in a host of characters in the New Testament. Probably one of the most strange characters. He's a guy that walks around wearing uh, goat's hair or camel's hair. He eats bugs. We're told that he eats locusts. And this, uh, this guy's just a really strange guy. He's out doing a ministry out by the Jordan River. He's baptizing people. Thousands upon thousands of people were coming out to him uh, to be baptized. This movement, whatever it was that John was leading, was pretty significant. A lot of people were being swept up in what John was doing. And as a result of that, John kind of caused a lot of stress or consternation for the religious leaders of the day because they are watching their numbers dwindle and they're watching John's numbers swell. And they're, they're, they're concerned about what this all means for them and their power and whatnot. So with that being said, uh, what John, the author, wants us to see is the testimony of this guy named John the Baptist. Now, again, there's some other interesting nuances with regard to this guy that uh, he doesn't necessarily tell us here, but we know based upon other uh, profile profiling of this guy. Uh, we know that he's actually the cousin of Jesus, so he's got some sort of relationship to Jesus himself. His dad was a Levite, which meant that his dad was basically a priest. So he was involved uh, family line-wise, up involved in the temple. Uh, for whatever reason, John leaves all that behind and then gets involved with this kind of uh, rogue ministry out by this river doing the stuff that he's doing. Um, but that being said, his message is really significant. It's so important, and his role is so important, that John's going to basically pull the life of John in, and more particularly, the message that John came to bring, and he's going to say, listen to what John has to say, because what John says is so gold, it's so important, because it will be one of the means of testimony. There's seven witnesses, if you would, that John basically will call throughout the entire book to call account on and to say, listen to this witness, listen to the testimony of this person, uh, and then again with the whole aim of, at the end of it, to say, I want you to take the sum total of all this testimony and realize it all points to Jesus. So his hope would be that, that you would trust entirely your life in the hands of King Jesus. So with that being said, I want to jump right in and begin to listen to what John has to say. Um, the way that John, the now again, you might already be confused because I've already thrown out the word John too many times. So there's a guy named John. He is the author of this book, right? He's the author of this book. Let's just call him, I don't know, Disciple John or Apostle John. And then there's John the Baptizer. We can just call him John the Bee, right? John the Bee. So John the Bee from Apostle John. So Apostle John is going to tell us about John the Bee, all right? And this is important testimony that he wants for us to pay attention to because whatever John the Bee is about to do or say, uh, this is something that John's saying, listen to this. Pay attention to what he has to say, because it's so significant, so important to the formation of your life and what you will choose to believe. And really, at the end of the day, your future, your destiny, where you will go, the type of person you will become, the type of life that you will live, uh, how you will respond to other people around you. 
All of this is absolutely essential. So this is our invitation to just listen to what John the Apostle has to say about John the Bee, and then we will begin to make some uh, assessments at the very end of this. All right, let's jump in. So the way he breaks this down is essentially three days. I'll just kind of read the first few verses of this so you can get a flavor of this. Uh, day one uh, is verses 19 to 28. We'll go down to uh, the end of that little section. The second day is beginning at verse 29. You can read it right there. It says, the next day he saw Jesus. And the last little like day that in the life of this prophet we'll take a look at is... Uh, John 135, it says, then the next day, again, John. So three days in the life of this prophet, um, more specifically, what does John say about Jesus in these three days that then become the means to formulate uh, a testimony or witness about who Jesus is? So hopefully that will all make sense as we jump in. So let's take a look at day one. I'm going to read through all of this. I'll make some comments. We'll just kind of do what we've been doing uh, the past few weeks. So um, if this is too lengthy, just think of this as story time with John the Apostle, right? Story time with John the Apostle, right? Imagine him, old guy, stroking his beard, and you're just listening to John the Apostle. He's like, he looks like Gandalf. He's telling you Jesus stories. So listen to the Jesus stories he's going to tell you, although this has to do with John the Bee. All right, it says, verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed. And did not deny, but confess, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of Yahweh, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? There's, there's a handful of things going on here. Number one, I think it's important just note, again, uh, this is something to easily glimpse over, but you know, I read some of these commentaries, and they make mental note in my head anyways, and make sense to me. Um, there has actually been some criticism about the Gospel of John that it's an actually, it's an anti-Semitic type of uh, uh, writing because of language like this. Again, I'll read it, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests. So what, what are the Jews that he's referring to? Is he referring to national Jews? Are the Jews actually anti-Jesus? Are the Jews anti-Christ? Are the Jews anti what God's up to? Is John the apostle uh, anti-Semitic? And this, these are actually some like questions that some have tried to, uh, to pin upon John. Um, and I think it's important to note, first of all, like who is he referring to when he describes the Jews? Uh, he actually tells us a little bit later uh, who these Jews are. Uh, the word that he uses there, it gets used around, I don't know, 70 times throughout his entire gospel account. So whoever this community of people are, they're so significant. They play a major role in terms of uh, playing this antagonist in the story of the life of Jesus. Now, most scholars also believe that really who he's referring to are the religious leaders. So if you follow, for example, verse 24, take a look at verse 24. And now they had been sent by or from the Pharisees. So this party of Jewish leaders called the Pharisees. Now, if you're familiar with Jewish history in the first century, you know there are like several different sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Jewish leadership. So you had uh, Pharisees, 
Uh, you had Sadducees. Pharisees were basically those that were devoted. They were kind of uh, identified as more of like uh, the conservatives. They held to the law. They wanted to establish certain standards of the law. Then you had the Sadducees. Uh, these guys were basically more politicians, and they were uh, in deep connection with the, uh, the, the secular leaders of the day. And uh, they, they did not believe in miracles or the uh, intervention a miraculous work of God. So these were more of the secular, so they were more concerned about consolidating their power. Uh, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't really always get along. They were kind of in conflict with each other. There were other religious leaders as well. But these are the main ones that we play, uh, that we see play into the gospel account. But that being said, whoever this delegation of religious leaders are that come out to John, they're questioning him. Uh, they're sent from these Pharisees. Now, this is what's important to know, that when John refers to the Jews, he's probably likely referring to those that are of this religious, strict, uh, religious sect of uh, religious leaders called the Pharisees. So uh, I think that's important, first of all, to note. Now, when they come to him, their main issue with John is like, who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? So their main issue with John is the question of authority and identity. Like, number one, who are you? Are you the prophet? Uh, which is probably a reference to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18. You can look this up on your own. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down and look at that up later. It's a reference to uh, a promise that God made to, to Moses. He says, I'm going to one day send another prophet like you to basically be a, 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 a leader of the people. So the question is, are you that prophet? Are you the prophet that God promised to, uh, to, uh, to Moses? Uh, secondly, they ask him, are you Elijah? Again, um, probably a reference to Second Kings verses one, uh, verse one eight. Um, again, this plays a little bit into uh, the whole vibe that John the B had. Right? Uh, again, if you live back in that first century day, uh, he stood out. Why? Because he wore sackcloth and ashes. Right? Not many people walk around wearing goat's hair. It was not in style even then. But the point of the matter is, what was John doing? Again, if you look at Second um, Kings chapter one eight. It tells us a little bit about who Elijah is and what he wore. It tells us Elijah actually walked around wearing sackcloth. So there's a lot of scholars actually believe that, that John the Bee sees himself kind of like in uh, street theatrics. He sees himself as like a fulfillment or an embodiment of the prophet. He doesn't see himself as like a reincarnation of the prophet, uh, but he sees himself as kind of a similar ministry like the prophet, the prophet Elijah. So much so that he actually dresses like him. Right? And not only that, it's interesting because John the Bee also had disciples, which we'll look at in the third day. Um, and these disciples, again, the, we tend to think of Jesus being the only guy that had disciples. The idea of a disciple, again, is a, an apprentice. There were lots of religious leaders in the first century that had disciples. So John the Baptist also had disciples. But that being said, it's possible that even John's disciples wore the same clothing that John the Baptist wore. So they probably would have looked like John the Baptist and acted a little bit like John the Baptist, which maybe being a little erratic or eating weird bugs and whatnot. But the point of the matter is, uh, these leaders go out to John and they're like, who gave you the authority to be baptizing these people? You have a massive amount of people. Who do you think you are? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? They also then ask him, are you the Messiah? The word Messiah literally means Christ. Um, and this is what I want to focus on in terms of this, the final uh, thought in terms of what is being asked of John and then what John is actually calling people to consider. Um, again, so this idea of identity and authority, uh, John is basically being inquired 
uh, there's a lot of frustrated people with who John is and what he's doing. And now in the verse 26, it says, and then John answered them. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across from Jordan where John was baptizing. So what John calls attention to is he wants them, first of all, so if you were to think of it this way, the message that John has can be found in verse 26. Again, I'll read it. Then John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. And the whole point that John is saying, there's one among you that this is the one I want you to look at. This is the one I want you to see. No, I'm not the Messiah, but that Messiah is here. And I want you to observe him, be aware of him. So the message I think John is suggesting here is the king, the Messiah is here. Now, again, we don't use language like Messiah for the most part in today's world, but the word Messiah just simply means king. I looked at this a couple weeks ago, but the idea of the anointed one, that's literally what the word Messiah means. And it always has upon itself this connotation of a king. Now, if you want to break this down a little bit further and think, what, what exactly is a king? What exactly is a king? What's the aim of a king? I think there are a lot of different ways in which you can identify or think about a king. And there's a lot of ways in which, especially in our modern culture and our world today, that we don't think too highly of kings. I mean, obviously, as Americans, we basically threw off the monarch and we're like done with that. We don't want a king and we think they're bad for society and whatnot. But that's for the most part because we've seen uh, distortions of kingship. We've seen monarchs take advantage of their power and authority and uh, crush any form of opposition. We are highly against authoritarianism. Uh, as Americans, if you haven't figured this out already, we, we, we claim to be all about freedom, very anti-authoritarian. Yet the odd thing is, is that there's this weird cycle in studying history um, that what happens typically is that you have societies either moving hard uh, authoritarian or hard freedom-oriented. And they kind of bounce back and forth between those two. You see the exact same thing happened in Rome, that Rome was very hard authoritarian for a very long time until it came around to the 300s where it became very freedom-oriented and it became very, we would even use the word, uh, decadent. Um, I, I like that word decadent because it literally within as the root word of that word decadent is the word decay. Their art, their, their music, their uh, free time was all about decadency. Uh, even the art you can look at, you can see it was very highly sexualized. Um, even in Pompeii, they say, there's massive amounts of art that was basically discovered in the homes of the elite, the wealthy, the rich, that were just clearly pornographic. What does this tell us about ancient society? They became very decadent. Prior to the years leading up to the fall of Rome, Rome became full of freedom that led to decadency. Again, then, like I said, you have other authoritarian movements that rise up. They're like, oh, man, this is bad for society. All this decay is bad. We are going to take a hard right turn to force people to do what we think is best for them. And that leads to totalitarianism, and you kind of bounce back and forth between that in cycles of history. So you can figure out exactly where we're at on that paradigm in today's world, but I'll leave that to you. But the point that I'd make is this. The aim of a king, the aim of a king, let's get back into the whole idea here is ultimately to bring about protection, peace, and prospering. Every king, I, I think you can make an argument. Every king, every kingly figure, every messianic figure that rises has these three items as a part of their menu of options or menu of, of agenda items to say, here's what I'm here to do. 
And again, we, like I said, don't have kings in America, but we do have presidents. And every president has this as their main agenda. Hey, I'm here, and I promise protection for us as a nation. I promise peace, unity for us as a community, and I promise a future for us of prospering. These are messianic claims. This is what I want you to see. The claim of Jesus is a political claim. And all I mean by political is the Greek word polis, meaning of or relating to the people. Jesus' claim of kingship was a political claim to say, I'm come to bring protection, peace, and prospering. Now, I want to be careful on this word prospering because of the confusion with like prosperity gospels and doctrines and things like that. The, the short version of this is if you trust Jesus, your life will be awesome and full of prosperity. We know that's not true because there's many people that follow Jesus and their life basically gets thrown to the lions. But the point of the matter is the future that Jesus promises is one of prospering, hope. The big idea here is hope. And so what John is saying is the Messiah. He's here. And I think this becomes a moment for us to just kind of pause and ask, what what messianic claims in our culture today have we bought into? Because there's a lot of messianic claims. There's a lot of messianic figures. In fact, it's interesting to me to note that even over the past maybe five years, big corporations have been taking on messianic characteristic traits. You know, buy this drink and we promise you all the revenue or some of the revenue is going to go towards protecting peace and prosperity in certain cultures and communities. They've taken on some form of messianic characteristic traits, which is interesting because that's sort of new because there's a very lengthy amount of time in especially American history, at least Western uh, history, that organizations and institutions were for the most part aimed at prosperity and capitalism and commercialism and so on and so forth. But now it's kind of taken more of a little bit of a moral uh, uh, trail into protecting and providing and bringing peace. But the point that I would make is this, is that John's saying that the king, the true king is here, which if we pause for a moment and just step back and and ask ourselves a question, if you were living there in that moment, you probably should ask the question, wait, don't we already have a king? His name's Caesar. And is, is this not a rival kingly claim? And this one of the reasons why Jesus ultimately is going to end up killed, because his claim is to be one that has come to bring protection, peace, and prospering. Because he's a Messiah. So the question is, who have we given allegiance to in terms of being king over our lives? What kingly claims or messianic claims have we listened to from you know, whoever it is, it could be a president or some form of a political figure or even a political party, a hope of protection, peace, and prospering. And yet, at the same time, they, in the long run, are never able or capable of delivering in the long run. In every movement, political, revolutionary, I mean, Che Guevara started off as with all of this, follow me, join my crusade, and I promise you a future of peace prospering, and protection. And again, over time, all of these things kind of degenerate. They turn into a place of brokenness, or at least somebody who's in charge or leading this charge, at some point, they become part of the problem. But Jesus' claim stands distinct from all of these, though resonant with the same type of data points. With that being said, John wants 
first of all, his hearers are recognizing day one, the king is here. The second day, we move on into verse 29. It says this, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom it is said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but uh, this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John bore witness. I saw the spirit from heaven descend like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend, this is who this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. So again, John makes his claim. This is day two. A uh, group of people are out there on day two. And when Jesus, uh, when Jesus is seen by John, John declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I want to make a couple quick um, bullet point observations. Number one, he uses the phrase Lamb of God. Walks we'll a circle back to this. Um, this is clearly a Passover reference. If you're familiar with uh, the book of Exodus, remember the children of Israel, they were uh, enslaved to Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. Um, they were suffering underneath their enslavement, um, and they were crying out to God. And they're crying out, and then God hears them and responds. And he sends a deliverer in the form of, of Moses. But prior to Moses doing what Moses could do to deliver them, God had to, to break them out of the stranglehold of Pharaoh, or at least remove them out from underneath the boot that was on their neck collectively as a nation. The way that God did this was he provided, he made this provision called the Passover lamb. So if you're familiar, Jews, even to this day, even secular Jews to this very day, they might not be devoted as followers of, of you know, Yahweh, but they're like, yeah, we celebrate Passover. Why do Jews worldwide celebrate this one holiday? Because this is so definitive to who they are as the formation of a nation. So on that day, they would take a, a lamb back, way back in the day, not today, but way back in the day, they would take a lamb and they would, they would slaughter it. And they would take the blood and they would put it up on top and the bottom around the, the doorpost. And it's kind of odd, especially to modern-day sensibilities. We're like, that sounds really barbaric. But again, listen to the story. We're not here to critique or judge it. We're here to listen to it and observe. And, but what would happen is that God says, anyone who's in the house where the blood was slaughtered and put over the, the house, if they're in this household, when the angel of death passes over, everyone will be protected. Their sins will be covered. God will show mercy. And, and you, anybody, you, can, you can stuff that house with anybody. It doesn't matter who they, they don't even have to be Jews. Just get them in the household. Get them under the doorpost of the blood, and they will be protected. It's a really powerful message. So when John uses imagery, he says, behold the Lamb of God. What's John doing? It's a hat tip to the Passover Lamb. Uh, second, John goes on to say, uh, he is one who ranks before me. And, and I love this, too, as well. Uh, John knew his place. John knew his place. He realized, like, there's a ranking system, right? We don't like hierarchy, especially in our culture today. We're like, we're very anti-hierarchy. Really? All you've done is you've taken the hierarchy, and you've turned it upside down, you made a new hierarchy, you're on top now. And you're judged. That's all you're doing. Please understand. So anytime you hear someone like, we're very anti-hierarchy, that's very hypocritical. But John recognized there's a hierarchy, and I'm below the king. The king has rightful place. And do you know that, according to the writer of Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? You want a path to wisdom? The first step towards that is know your place. Know your master. Do you know who your master is? Who are you serving? All of us. You know, again, according to the prophet, you know, John, or, uh, Dylan, or Bob Dylan, right? You get the idea that you've got to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. 
And the point that I would make is this, is that every human being in this room right now, we are serving something. You might say, I'm completely free. You're serving your appetites. You are a slave to your desires. That might be the worst form of slavery. How do you get free? Jesus sets you free. And this is what we see is that John recognizes his place. And it goes on to say, uh, the other thing that he points out here, he says, I saw the spirit like a dove descend upon him. Again, this is really interesting. There's a lot of scholars actually believe that what John might be referencing here is in the book of uh, Genesis, where it's a reference to Noah. When Noah sends out after the flood, a dove comes back with an olive uh, branch in his mouth, and then it deposits, obviously, to uh, Noah. And this olive branch, or I should say more specifically, this, this dove becomes sort of this, this emblem of hope and peace and safety and healing. In other words, a future. Ah, the dove came back. Future and hope, healing, goodness. Ah. And then John says, I saw the dove, the Spirit of God, like a dove, descend upon Jesus. And I think this is kind of, again, John's way using language from the Bible to say, uh, to articulate who Jesus is, the identity of this one. He is the king that has come. And when, when he comes with him, he brings peace, future, hope, healing. Because the Spirit of God, like a dove, descended upon him. And I think in the second day, John's message is something along these lines. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I want to focus on this last little segment here, the idea of takes away the sins of the world. Whoever Jesus is, John wants us to not miss what his main aim is, to take away the sins of the world. The fact of the matter is we live in a culture today. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't like the idea of sin. We feel like sin is very alienating. And the fact of the matter is, it is. Sin is alienating. It's soiling. It's defiling. And we are not immune to it. All of us sin. All of us have dealt with sin. Um, this is very reminiscent in my mind, if you want a better, maybe a, or another more modern analogy. I say modern, it's like hundreds of years old. Uh, but Shakespeare, you know, if you're familiar with his, his story, uh, one of the great stories, uh, tragedy called uh, Macbeth. If you're familiar with the storyline, what ends up happening in that particular story, uh, this guy, Macbeth, he's a soldier, and he ends up connecting with Lady Macbeth, who's the queen. And they conspire together, basically kill the king. I'm just giving you a quick little rundown. To, to kill the king. So Macbeth goes in there with a dagger. He kills the king. And he's got blood all over his hands. And he brings a dagger to Macbeth, and, or the Lady Macbeth. And she's like, get this thing out of here. And so he tries to go hide it and get rid of it. They take the dagger, put it back by the guards. And the, the guards wake up and they realize, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a bloody knife in our hands. And the king's dead. We're dead. <laughs> so that's basically what happens. Um, but that's just the beginning of the story. Because as the story goes on, um, both uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, they can't sleep. They find themselves filled with paranoia, insomnia. Uh, they begin to have erratic behaviors. And all of this stems from one thing, guilt. And there's this, like, line that's very popular. She says, you know, out damn spot. Because she wakes up in the middle of the night. She's sleepwalking. She can't sleep. She has insomnia. She's walking around. And she's, like, trying to get rid of the, she's trying to get rid of the spot in her hands. It's blood. In her sleep, she can't get rid of it. There's this little line in the story. During a sleepwalking scene, Lady Macbeth, while rubbing uh, this spot, or what perceived to be the spot in her hand, uh, she begins to sob, and she says this, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. This is the problem. All of us as human beings, we have a sin problem. And, but sin leads to, to death. But prior to death, sin leads to this guilt, Shame, regret, paradigm, complex, pathology. 
And we don't know what to do with it. And our secular culture doesn't have answers to that. Actually, it does. It says just take psychedelics, drink more wine, rosé all day, you'll be fine. Until you're back to normal again. We live in a culture that's filled with all sorts of means of entertainment. So as long as we can entertain ourselves, the hope is that somehow that will at least cover the guilt, shame, regret, pathology. But it doesn't work. Maybe this, maybe in part, the incredible spike and the rise of anxiety and stress in our culture today. Maybe we, what we really have undergirding so much of what's happening, the breakdown of culture in America today, is actually a guilt, shame, regret problem. And the question is, is how do we deal with that? And the ways and the means that we do employ to deal with that, do they really work? Do they really work long term? Or do they only compound it? Because now I've been using alcohol for so long to deal with the guilt, shame, regret of my soul. Now I'm addicted to alcohol. Now I got a complex or a compounded issue here. Or downloading porn or taking psychedelics or smoking weed. Or I mean, you fill in the blank. Now you just have a compounded problem that requires alternate forms of intervention. And it never really takes away the spot. It's still there. So what John has to say is so mind-blowing. Because he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world. I don't know where you're at in this paradigm or this journey. Or how you even think about your own stuff. We all have stuff. This is not in any way, shape, or form this idea of somebody's got worse sin than us. Look, we're all in the same paradigm. All of us are part of the same problem. All of us have been sinned against. All of us have somehow uh, been a, a means of sinning against other people. All of us have participated in this guilt, shame, regret cycle. But all of us are equally invited to do what John invites us to, is to look at, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the last movement is day three, and I'm done. He says in verse 35 to 37, he says, The next day John was standing with the two disciples, and then he looked. At Jesus, as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Again, he repeats that. And then these two disciples heard him say this, and then they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. What I love about this is that what John is doing is he's trying to draw these conclusions, these connections. Number one, he wants us to, first of all, recognize that the king is here. The king. The king, the one who has promised to come to bring protection and peace and prospering into our lives. The Lamb of God who promises to come to remove these indelible residues of guilt, shame, and regret. Because he alone is the only one who's equipped and capable and able of doing any of that. Imagine right now, just pause and think about this. Imagine your slate, how stained, how defiled, how dirty, how putrefying it is. Imagine it being washed as white as snow. You put your head on your pillow at night, you're not thinking about your guilt. You wake up in the morning or the middle of the night, you're not in hot sweats over like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get found out. Imagine having a conscience that's absolutely, completely purged and like a child's again. I don't know where else you're going to go to find a better claim or offer than Jesus. And this is why John finishes with this whole idea Follow him. I think this is his final message. Follow him. 
So these two disciples of John begin to follow Jesus. And then we're going to begin to follow their story as it gets unpacked for us throughout the remainder of this book. But this is the last thing I think we're just invited to really focus on and think about. And for you to ask yourself, where are you at on this journey? Like, where do you stand? When you look at Jesus, you, again, you might be someone that's like, I'm very familiar with Jesus. I know all about the whole stuff that he's done. It's amazing. He forgives us. Everything. Great. But the fact of the matter is, does that ravish your soul? Does it cause you to become a white-hot worshiper of Jesus? Or is it easy to just kind of be all casual about it? Like, yeah, whatever. It's cool, man. He saved me. It's awesome. Or is it like, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm utterly unworthy of the kindness and the goodness that this God has shown me? Or are you somebody that might be, again, you're on this journey trying to make sense of who Jesus is, and, what, and you're trying to figure out, like, ex- what, does, what exactly is Jesus all about? I'm, I'm telling you, the most simplest ways that I can tell you is exactly just repeating what John says. Number one, he is a king who promises to bring peace, protection, and prospering to your life. Again, make sure you see my notes from earlier about the word prospering so you don't mistake that. Secondly, he promises to be the lamb that takes away all the sin of your life and of this world to rid your conscience of all of it, to cleanse you, to make you a brand new person. And his invitation finally is to say, follow him. So if you're a follower of Jesus already, man, be reminded of the greatness of the salvation that Jesus comes bringing. If you're not a follower of Jesus, my hope would be this morning that you would say, I want to follow him. I don't know what that looks like. I'm not sure exactly what that entails for me, but I want to follow Jesus. I'm done. Let's all stand. I'm going to pray for us. <clears throat> and I want to, as I pray, I want to just uh, invite you to think about, like, maybe you're someone here this morning, and you're still trying to make sense of Jesus, and maybe you at one point knew a little bit about Jesus and what he had promised, and maybe drifted or walked away. Uh, I, I want to give you an opportunity to place your confidence in Jesus here this morning. So I want to pray for us. Why don't we just bow our heads, close our eyes, and God, right now, I just invite you in this space to move and work in our hearts, to reveal yourself, to demonstrate to us that you are a trustworthy God, that we can literally give our lives entirely to you, knowing that you love us, that you're for us, that your aim in this life is to enter into the story of our brokenness to deal with the root of that brokenness, which is this rebellion and death, and make us new people. If you're here this morning, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you have at one point had some sort of knowledge of God, but you've drifted. If you would like to trust Jesus today, maybe for the very first time or maybe for the very first time in a really long time, I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything weirder than if you would like to lift up your hand. I just want to pray for you. That's all it. I just want to know who you are so I can pray for you. If you afterwards would like to have someone chat with you or talk with you, I'll be available up front. We'll have some other leaders up front to pray with you and just connect with you. Anybody here at all, that's just kind of you. You're like, I want to trust my life in the hands of Jesus here this morning. I just thought it would be kind of appropriate to give you an opportunity to respond if that's you. Just raise your hand. So God, right now, I pray for the work that you're wanting to do in people's hearts. God, help our hearts to just respond rightly to you. It's really easy for us to walk away and uh, just pay homage or lip service. But God, we know that what you're really after is transformation of our hearts. So make us brand new people. 
so that as we scatter here, God, that we could enter into all those areas of our world around us to be our own testimonies of grace and goodness and the love of God. So empower us to be able to do that well. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name.